0: So I thought I'd start with um, one of my favorite templates for the spiritual path, and in a way a retreat is a, as a kind of microcosm, when we are paying attention that it's like jumping off an airplane and realizing that we don't have a parachute, and then realizing really that there's no ground to hit, because everything's changing. And then realizing there really was no one that jumped. (laughs) So you're jumping off plane and realize that there's no parachute, that really we can't control what's happening. And You've got that one you know, right? That it just happens. And we start getting that we think we're going to hit ground, maybe we hit something, but then there's something else and something else. Things keep changing. And then the one that might seem more elusive is, but really nobody jumped. It's not really happening to somebody. It's happening, but not to somebody. But we'll explore that a little. That's part of what I'd like to look at. When we're suffering, it feels very much like, uh, even though we don't have a parachute, we're trying to invent a parachute moment by moment. We're trying to control. And when we're suffering, um, even though things keep changing, we think that in some way we're stuck, it's not going to change. And then of course when we're suffering we think intensely, it's happening to me, or I'm causing it. There's just some of the signposts. So the inquiry tonight is one of the core inquiries on a spiritual path, which is really how do we realize, and how do we trust this path, this process, this beingness that's here, so that we're not so wildly trying to grab the controls, so we're not always fearing the ground we're going to hit. How do we trust? The uh, suffering self goes around with the sense that there's a problem. How do we get it that things can feel bad, but it's not a problem? So there's a um, kind of a metaphor, kind of legend from India that talks about a musk deer uh, that detects this kind of mysterious heavenly fragrance. And it, it has a sense of peace and love to it. And so it feels like it's being beckoned. And the whole purpose of its life is it's compelled to find the source of this, uh, fragrance. And so he sets out and he, he just travels all, you know, goes over these icy forbidding peaks and through, um, you know, torrential storms and steamy jungles and across endless desert sands and so on. Finally, the, no, 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 no finding of the scent, just finally at the end of his life, exhausted from the effort, uh, he, he kind of topples over and his horn pierces his belly and that scent that he was pursuing his whole life fills the air. And so it is uh, with most of us that there's a sense that, uh, and these are what I consider, like, the key delusions of the separate self, that there's something we're wanting that's down the road. might even be, you know, tomorrow at the end of the retreat and it might be 20 years from now, but it's down the road and it's out there, it's outside, it's not, it's not right here, it's not right now. And, um, it's either, if it's possible, it's, it's not yet and sometimes it's not even possible. And that who who we are is really a self with a problem that has to get through the problem first. So the musk deer does not trust what is right here and what is right now. And the Buddha and every major spiritual, mystical tradition teaches It's really a radical reminder that what we seek is what we are. That even when we're most neurotic and confused and most hopeless, still that which we're longing for, that uh, awakeness and freedom and open-heartedness is available right, right here, right now that we're no more separated from it than a wave is from the ocean, that we belong to it. So those are the teachings and the process of enlightenment or spiritual awakening is one of awakening from the separate self that feels I've got a problem, the separate self that's trying to get somewhere, to this realization of beingness that it's, that's here. It's a, it's a widening and an opening of our sense of identity. I sometimes like to think of it in terms of uh, waves and ocean that awareness hitches its identity to a pattern of waves and that the awakening is realizing the ocean-ness that is filling this pattern of waves is, is really what we are. So the realization has got all sorts of different language to it. And this came up the other morning, I mean, for some people the realization would we be discovering our true nature, our beingness, our divine love, our God, you know, the mystery. There's all these different words, but they all point to this original intrinsic nature Uh, that we have. This awareness and love that's really our essence. So the key intuition on the path that keeps, that brings us here and that, and when I say here, brings us in some way to situations where we can deepen our attention, that brings us to processes that help us wake up, this intuition is that it's possible that something in us senses our potential to be more free. You know, I remember one of the first long retreats I attended, it was uh, a six-week at IMS. One of the teachers, I have no idea who it was now, said something like, do you trust that you're an awakening Buddha? That That you've got that Buddha nature, that potential to realize? And, in my mind, and, and it was kind of, it wasn't quite a hand raise, but he was really asking. And I remember thinking, yeah, and then, mm, sometimes, you know, I kind of <laughs> deflated. And I started tracking, I had this inquiry, which was, who am I taking myself to be at any given moment? And I started tracking how many moments I was taking myself to be, you know, a self who wanted to prove herself, uh, as Jonathan was mentioning last night, you know, look good in an interview, and a self that was on a, on the way to the lunchroom and was really fixated on food, or the self that wanted to look good, you know, wearing the shawl or have, you know, just how I appeared to others when they weren't even looking at me, you know, that kind of thing. And in those moments, the trust in Buddha nature was at best an idea and mostly. At those moments, I didn't really like myself. I didn't trust myself. And then there were other moments that there was quietness. My mind was getting quiet or in nature walking, you know, or doing a practice and really feeling love. when it was just, yeah, that's, that goodness is here. So we kind of remember and connect with it and we forget But as you've probably discovered, there are big swaths of time that we're in that kind of trance where we're taking ourselves to be a self that's separate and in many ways not okay. So I want to look at that because almost always if there is a sense of I'm a self here and things are happening to me and I'm on my way somewhere, Deep down, there's going to be mistrust and self-doubt. Why? Because we're not inhabiting the truth and fullness of who we are. We're living in just a fragment of who we are. And something in us knows that. So we don't like or trust the self we're inhabiting. It's too small. It's like we're in the cocoon. So the path of waking up, we start noticing that we are stuck. There is a sense of uh, being in something too small, being in a kind of ego trance of virtual reality where believing thoughts that are limiting. Annie Lamott writes, My mind is my main problem almost all the time. I wish I could leave it in the fridge when I go out but it likes to come with me. (laughs) So we start sensing, as we're here, we start shining a light on, okay, caught in the story, and we start sensing how when we're in the story there's a lot of, you know, fear and anger and sometimes shame or whatever, but we can get really lost in it. One writer describes a gen- this, an older gentleman knocks on his son's door. Jamie, he says, wake up. Jamie answers, I don't want to get up, Papa. And the father shouts, get up, you have to go to school. Jamie says, I don't want to go to school. Why not ask the father? Three reasons, says Jamie. First, because it's so dull. Second, the kids tease me. And third, I hate school. And the father says, well, I'm going to give you three reasons why you must go to school. First, because it's your duty second, because you're forty-five years old, and third, because you're the headmaster. (laughs) Big problema when we believe the story, when we're in the dream, and um, when we're in it, usually in some way we're failing, or we're unlovable, or we're unseen, and we need to change, or else somebody else needs to change for us to be okay. That's before we've made the U-turn. It's like, you're, it's your fault. There's a saying that, man marries woman, expects she will not change. She does. Woman marries man, expects him to change. He doesn't. <laughs> so, believing your thoughts, believing the virtual reality is trouble. I read that 86% of all statistics are made up. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) All right. So you cannot sustain the thoughts, the trance, unless you are in a kind of one of those incessant uh, thinking, inner dialogues, and you're believing your thoughts. I always find that when people leave retreats, Often the biggest single takeaway, this is really the number one takeaway, I don't have to believe my thoughts. If you can leave with even a little more of a sense of that, enormous freedom opens up. But we do believe our thoughts. We get caught in believing the fearful things we're, that are coming up in our mind that they're true. Uh, there's one story some of you might remember that I, th- I think exemplifies some because when we're believing our thoughts, our body goes along for the ride and has all the feelings that go with the belief, of course, which then loops to feed the belief, which then loops to feed the feeling. Does that make sense, this looping we get in? A couple from Michigan decide to go to Florida for uh, just to get a break from the winter, and they're going to spend their... Sit their time at the same hotel where they went and had their honeymoon uh, 20 years earlier. But because of their schedule, they had to leave at different times, and he got there first. And uh, she was going to fly in the next day. So he, there's a computer's room, so he decides to send an email. And he accidentally leaves out one letter and the email address and sends the email. Well, somewhere in Houston... A woman had just returned home from her husband's funeral. And he had been a, a minister many years and he was called home to glory following a sudden heart attack. So the widow goes, she goes home. She decides to check her, her email. And she looks at the first message and she faints. And the widow's son rushes into the room and he finds his mother on the floor. And here's what was on the computer screen. Two, my loving wife. Subject. I've arrived, date 20th of March 2016. I know you're surprised to hear from me. They have computers here now and you're allowed to send emails to your loved ones. I've just arrived and been checked in. I see that everything's been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. Looking forward to seeing you then. Hope your journey is as uneventful as mine was. P.S. Sure is hot down here. (laughs) So believing our thoughts. You know, it's a fun (laughs) one, but there's a good reason we often quote Mark Twain, who said, you know, the worst things in my life never actually happened, right? Right. And it's because our mind just runs through all these scenarios and we live in fear of what's around the corner. And it's really uh, quite profound when we sense how much our body is tensing against what we think might be around the corner. How many of you have noticed that? Yeah, okay. So often our, our as I'm mentioning, our thoughts are fear-based. Sometimes they're not. They're, you, sometimes they're divided into, this is good, I like this, this is bad, I don't like that. So we're constantly evaluating what's happening, constantly putting a layer over it of I want, I like, I don't want, I don't like. It's very much shaped by our mood. It's also developmental. There's some beliefs that are more when we're younger and then we adopt new ones as we get older. For one young person, eight-year-old, loses a tooth and she's curious about the tooth fairy. So she asks her mom, Mom, are you the tooth fairy? And her mom realizes, okay, it's time for her to step out of that old one and she goes, yeah, I am. And it seemed like her daughter took the news, it's kind of jarring news, but took it well and so the mother heads to the door but then the daughter says, Mom, wait, I have a question. How do you get into the other kids' houses, you know? So we don't let go so quickly. Anam Thubten, who's a wonderful Tibetan teacher, puts it this way, Can we see that there's a mental world that we've created somewhere in our consciousness? It's a mind-created world that we've been living in forever. The world we must awaken from is the world that the mind has constructed. So reality, it's beyond this mind-constructed world that we're in. When we're in this mentally-constructed universe, the protagonist is self. I'm sure you've noticed that, that the self is the main player. And it's all about what's happening to me or what's caused by me. There's an owning of experience when we're inside a mind-constructed reality, I own these feelings. A man says to a bartender, I know I'm nothing but I'm all that I can think about, right? And then poet Wei Wu Wei says, why are you unhappy? Because 99.9% of everything you do is for yourself and there isn't one. So, as mentioned, to maintain the story of self we have to keep telling ourselves stories about what's happening. And the power of what you're doing here with meditation is you're on purpose noticing, Oh, I'm in a virtual reality. Let's open out of it. Let's relax open. So you can begin to see more and more, and you're noticing more and more that the stories are happening. And in the moment you become mindful of a story happening, you're not as inside the wave, you're not as identified, you're not believing it as much. It becomes more transparent. That gives some opportunity to recognize what the stories have been covering over. And what the stories cover over, it's kind of, if you imagine a light bulb with uh, kind of a material over it that just darkens everything. The stories are like that surrounding felt or material. When you start having the stories more transparent, not as believable, light start shining through. It's like that, that radiance of your beingness starts shining through. In the Carlos Castaneda books, the Shaman Don Juan says that we maintain our world with our inner dialogue. A man or woman of knowledge is aware that the world will change completely as soon as they stop talking to themselves. So when you start noticing the stories, and these are limbic stories, they're driven by fear and wanting, and you start noticing them And in the noticing, they lose their energy some. In a kind of psychobiological way, you start having more access to the more recently developed part of your brain, the frontal cortex. When you stop running the stories as much, you actually have more access to the frontal cortex, which is the site of mindfulness, compassion, perspective. When you have access, you're more in touch with your heart and your spirit. You're more able to be true to your values, to what matters. I heard a story some years ago. Uh, a woman was describing time with her dying father and he had been a, you know, kind of a larger than life figure. He'd been an architect, for it, pretty well known, designed buildings and urban centers and so on. And he was a very driven guy. Like, his identity and his work were merged. And so, being so work-focused, he had been pretty neglectful as a parent. So they had a pretty distant relationship and there was a lot of tension and she had to do a lot of psychological work to, to you know, be with that wounding. But here he was at the end of his life and they, um, they were spending a lot of time together. So she recounts a moment where she was saying, well, tell me about what of your, what your accomplishments were. What, what was the accomplishment you felt most proud of? And there was a long pause and then with tears in his eyes he looked at her and he said, why, you of course. And when I heard this story I thought, wow, it's amazing how impermanence, when we're aware of mortality, it changes. The stories stop running in the same way. I need to do this and accomplish this to be better at that. And, in a way, we get access to more of the depth and dimension of who we are. And I think part of what we practice is so that we don't have to wait till the end of our lives to get that perspective. Does that resonate for you? So we look at the path and we say, okay, so what helps us to trust who we are beyond this small self that's striving or wanting and deep down doubting itself? What helps us to trust, really, who we are? And when we look at uh, the mythology of the Buddha, the Buddha's story, I think of it as a story of making an evolutionary shift in consciousness. Making that shift from the, the egoic self that's really driven by these stories and driven by the fears and the wants and the sense of separation and doubt to the sense of our beingness which in a, again, the body-mind way, it's an integrated brain that allows for the, the heart and the spirit to shine forth. It's an evolutionary shift in human development that the Buddha modeled. And so if you look at the story, and I'll just name a few key points, we can see more clearly what we're doing right here. And the story starts getting juicy when the Buddha encounters three heavenly messengers, encounters aging, sickness, and death, the the sense of change and suffering. And so he goes... He ventures forth to find a way really to make room for all of that, to be with all of that. And he, take, he does it at first in a less mature way where he, he tries to str- he does it through the striving and the de- self-deprivation and finds that doesn't work <laughs> so well for him. You know, the sense that you're supposed to be perfect or make progress or deny yourself. or That didn't work. So then he paused, and the the Bodhi tree is where he paused. And that's where we are. So we have paused before the Bodhi tree and we're sensing, okay, let's deepen attention right now. And through the night, that famous night of his awakening under the Bodhi tree, the process going on was he was encountering all those limbic energies that we all know about the anger and the shame and the fear and the desire in the form of Mara, the God Mara. He was encountering them and he was meeting them with the two wings of awareness. He was meeting them with mindfulness, seeing what's happening, that's the recognition, sometimes the investigation. And he was meeting them with tremendous compassion. And through the night as as Mara attacked, because that's the imagery of the metaphor, um, this, this limbic energy is attacking, you know, slings and arrows and so on, as the Buddha engaged with this um, presence that we're really cultivating here, of recognizing and allowing, they turned into flower petals. And by the time the morning star had risen, there was a big mound of flower petals as feet. And the Buddha's identity was shifting. He had shifted from, you know, the one that was striving and depriving and so on, to this presence, this open, caring presence that was able to be with what came. But he wasn't completely free. So Mara pulled out the final major challenge, which I know many of you know. What was that final challenge? Say it loud. Let's hear it. Doubt. Doubt. All right, let's hear it for doubt. It's like singing, I'm not enough, you know, doubt. It's a big one, it's really big. So doubt, doubt was, was the one. And the Buddha, when encountering doubt, which really took the form, the, the Mara said, who do you think you are? Like, who are you taking yourself to be, right? And that doubt was major because it shined a light on where the Buddha wasn't totally trusting his Buddha nature, right? So in those moments, he reached out and he touched the earth, and that's a symbol of calling on the earth goddess, which is really calling on this whole universal web of loving awareness, this whole living world, to bear witness to nurture him in a way and reminding him of his goodness. You are good. You are the Buddha. You are awareness. And it's in those moments, this is why I love this so much, he reached out and he called on loving presence, it's in those moments that doubt, that sense of that small self dissolved and he rested in the trusts and the light and the radiance of his true nature. So here we are and there are times that we feel doubtful and we need to recognize doubt, really contact it, and also turn towards love, call on love. And sometimes it's going to feel like we can call on love and offer it to our own self. And sometimes it's going to feel like we need to call on love and sense deities or loved ones or a dog or a child and let the love come that way. Do you know, in the long run, there's no difference. We have this idea that we're, not supposed, we're supposed to source only from inside. There's no real inside and outside. We're calling on love. If you call on love from the earth goddess and you feel it pouring in, what you're going to find is that love was always a part of you. You just were forgetting. So if you feel caught and you can offer yourself kindness, just sense what source you might call on in the universe because there is kindness in this universe. Call on it and you'll reconnect with your universal belonging in that way. So these are the key elements in the Buddha's awakening and in our awakening and it's an evolutionary awakening and we have that potential built into us, built into us. The key elements, recognizing what's right here and then allowing it. And for me when I'm allowing, often it's in a very simple and deep way saying, this belongs. This pain in here, this fear, this anger, this shame, it belongs. It's like letting the energies that are here belong. And in doing that we open to something larger. I'll give you an example from this last year, of uh, a friend of mine that I really bore witness to the power of trusting this basic goodness, this capacity in us. And um, I've spoken about her before. Her, her name was Sherry Maples, uh, teacher, taught here with her and elsewhere, one of my best friends. She had a major bike accident a couple of years ago and she died about a half a year ago from the injuries, but before she died I visited her in the hospital and she knew she was never going to be able to walk again and she had been a, uh, a professional athlete and I was really struck by how... Um, surrendered and open and trusting she was of just what was unfolding. Background is, Sherry, you know, had a lot of losses in her life and one of the most recent major uh, traumas to her system uh, had been that she had been in a long-term relationship and it crashed. And the loss of that relationship spiraled her into a depression that was um so big and this was just a couple of years ago that she who had been a very active teacher and uh you know a wonderful inspiration for many had to pull back from her activities for many many months it was that bad like she really could barely go out and underneath the depression was a sense that she couldn't she didn't belong to anything like it was severed belonging which is really the core Torment. I think we really, every one of us wants to belong. And so that's what the breakup meant to her, some sense of, I can't trust there's any possibility of belonging. Gradually, over the months, like the Buddha under the Bodhi tree, those two wings became active and she began to recognize and really contact underneath the depression the profound sense of wounds and grief and hurt. And she began to let it belong, let it be there. She began more and more to to be able to regard it with compassion and when she couldn't, she called on, she had circle of dear ones, she'd just feel herself washed over with care from others. Gradually she began to sense that she was more that compassionate presence than she was the depressed one that didn't belong that's the shift in identity that's the evolutionary shift instead of believing in the stories of the separate self the rejected self oh okay the more we bring the two wings of presence the more we become that presence and recognize that as who we are we become the ocean, we're not as much identified with the waves. So when, d- when she would had the accident I asked her, well, how are you holding this? She said, well, I already died. I already endured the greatest loss, I already was with it, and I really trust the power of heart and awareness to be with whatever else comes. That's what I consider a fearless heart. Um, One teacher, Sayadaw Ubandita, calls it a heart that's ready for anything. And that's our potential. And when we have a heart that's ready for anything, we don't have to tense against what's around the corner. We get to live this moment. And there's a spontaneity and a freedom to love in this moment. One of the main pieces that as you practice and to deepen the trust, if you want a trick for deepening the trust, is when you have even a glimmer of feeling love or gratitude or spaciousness or equanimity, when you have a glimmer of okayness in some form, when you feel at home, pause and totally immerse in it so that you get to know it really well. If you touch a resource state and then you just move on, the brain doesn't really register it. We have a negativity bias. We really register negative stuff. We don't register the stuff that's really um, life-enhancing so well. So give yourself the gift of entraining to the states that are expressions of that deeper nature. And that's the way you turn a state into a trait. That's the way you have more access. That's the way, and I I think of it as this is like we're learning the real meaning of namaste here. So we can begin to behold ourselves and we can see all the covering and all the defenses and this and that, but we can really see the light shining through because we've gotten familiar with it. And we can look at another and see the light shining through because that's become more familiar than believing in the stories. There's a hospice nurse who described uh, an incident at one of the county hospitals that she worked at. She had a patient who, 44 years old, had served a long sentence for robbery and he was dying from complications of AIDS, HIV, and hepatitis C. So he didn't want um, his mother called because he was so ashamed of his life. But this this hospice nurse, she was also a Buddhist practitioner, um, saw beneath his shame in some way. She saw something, and after they, they had a real deep conversation, she convinced him to make contact with his mother and several... Uh, days later, she arrived, and she's this frail woman, over 80 years old, and she she walks in and she has a, you know, grief-stricken expression. And um, when she comes in, she, see, she sees her son who hasn't spoken to her for years, and there he is, and he's in prison garb, and he's handcuffed to his bed. Okay. So... The woman that was just telling the story, she was afraid that this dignified, stern-looking woman would judge judge her son. But the, here's what happened. Instead, uh, after initial greetings, they looked one another all over. Then their eyes locked and the circumstances and sufferings, the roles and costumes all dropped away. Nurse said that Bill's mother gazed at her son like a newborn child, like a saint witnessing a miracle with a vast heart of all mothers. Bill and his mother saw one another, in one another their secret beauty, forgiving, timeless, eternal. They sat together for an hour and held hands. There was not much that needed to be said. When his mother left, Bill said now he could die at peace. We have this capacity in us to see past the conditioning in ourselves to that secret beauty and in each other. And if we entrain in that, that becomes more and more the true realization of who we are. So I want to pause here and just invite you to check in, do a little bit of just a, a brief reflection here. It's a little practice in, in training because it's it's so valuable if we want to deepen trust. I'd like to invite you to bring to mind someone who's easy to love, an uncomplicated kind of love. It could be a child, it could be your dog, it could be a friend that really is Close and comfortable could be um, someone you don't know, could be so well um, that you feel love with. It's maybe a spiritual figure. Whoever comes to mind, uh, just sense what it is about them that makes them lovable. What is it about their way they express their aliveness? As you are scanning and sensing you might see them loving you. Like what is the look in their eyes when they are appreciating you, loving you, enjoying you, entertained by you, feeling close to you? just feel your heart's appreciation and you might even bring one or two hands to your heart and just feel what it's like to really appreciate and love that being. You might mentally whisper their name and say thank you, perhaps a few times. feeling your own heart space, letting it be as large as it is. Again, just saying thank you or I love you to that being. Just let sense how love can fill your body and go beyond your body. Just be that heart space. Get to know it some. What's it like when you're feeling that warmth towards another? The more you get to know this way that that light and love shines through your body, your heart, the more you start trusting beyond any story, that this is what you are, this heart space. The Radiant Sutras put it this way, there is a place in the heart where everything meets. Go there if you want to find me. Mind, senses, soul, eternity, all are there. Are you there? Enter the bowl of vastness that is the heart give yourself to it with total abandon. Quiet ecstasies there and a steady regal sense of resting in a perfect spot. Once you know the way the nature of attention will call you to return again and again and be saturated with knowing I belong here, I am at home here. Once you know the way The nature of attention will call you to return again and again and be saturated with knowing, I belong here, I am at home here. sensing, as you are right now, who you are. What's your deepest sense of your own being when you're experiencing heart space? In the mythology of the Buddha, one of the pathways of waking up is to bring these wings of mindfulness and heartfulness to the changing forms. And another is just to look back into awareness and sense this formless presence that's here. That's the second pathway. I'm going to just invite you to explore that a little bit before we close tonight because both we can pay attention to the ways of experience and then sense that ocean-ness and we can also turn our attention right back and say, really, what's this awareness right here? So I'm going to move right into um, right into this kind of exploration to sense the awareness that's here. One of the descriptions that's helpful sometimes, and if you'd like you can open your eyes for a bit, um, either way, you can sit eyes closed or eyes open. Um, one Tibetan teacher had a big poster and, he said, and a little V on it, and he said, well, what's this? And most every, all the students said, well, it's a bird. And his response was, it's the sky with a bird flying through it. So this next little piece is we're just going to do a figure ground switch. We usually pay attention to the bird. Can we sense the skylight quality of what we are? This awareness its a space that everything's happening in. And this is where we get to that part of the, you know, jumping off the plane with the parachute, not hitting the ground and realizing nobody jumped. This is what's sometimes called, you know, recognizing that there's there's no solid self in here. There's a story um, on the terrace of a monastery high in the mountains An old Zen Buddhist monk stood next to a much younger monk while they both contemplated the great void, the misty space out yonder. The old monk at one point gently declared, ah, my son, one day all of this void will be yours. <laughs> this is where we get to go. So awareness, what is awareness? Let me, let me just ask you to check out for a moment and if you've done this 20 times it still really works. So for the next 15 seconds, your assignment, try not to be aware, okay? Starting now, try not to be aware. Try not to be aware. Last few moments. Okay, yeah, that's good. Okay, how many were able to not be aware? Yay! I was hoping somebody would raise their hand. Okay, so for most people what you find is that awareness is just there. It's like it is just, there is a presence registering. It's an open presence registering. Now close your eyes again just so you can pay attention. And you might say to yourself, okay, I'm going to try not to be aware. So you can again sense this the background, this awareness just keeps going and going and going. And turn the mind and says, "Well, what, what's this awareness, what are the basic qualities, what is awareness? What can you sense about awareness that's just true? Can you sense that awareness is innately open, that there is a boundlessness, there is just no boundary, no limit? Can you sense that awareness is innately wakeful, there is a knowing quality? sometimes described like a sunlit sky, that there's openness and there's light and you can't really separate them, it's a sunlit sky, knowing and open. And can you sense that when awareness encounters a wave of experience there's a natural tenderness or responsiveness? When there's that openness and wakefulness, truly open, truly wakeful. There's tenderness. Often these are the three characteristics that are described. But keep exploring for yourself. Open, wakeful, tender. Now again, if you'd like to open your eyes for a moment, feel free. It's very difficult to explore the nature of awareness when the mind is busy. The more thoughts going on, the less we are able to sense the background of alert, still, open, sky-like mind. So I'd like to invite you, when your mind gets quieter, to let those be the times when there is a kind of a sense of a... Sometimes described as a ghost self. Like you can sense behind maybe the curtain there is some controlling, some sense of self, but more there's kind of a quietness and you're just note- noticing changing experience. Those are the times that you can begin to make a little bit of a turn of attention and bring mindfulness to the awareness itself. Here's how it's sometimes described, that we're typically, if like my hands right now are like my mind, we're t- typically looking out and fixating on objects. We're fixating on images and sounds and thoughts, looking out. And when we want to look into awareness it's like there's a slight effort which is to look and see what's here and then there's a complete letting go, being free. So the practice, it's sometimes called the backward step, where we're stepping back and just to experience awareness directly, is a Kind of an inquiry, like what's what's here? And then just letting go and being whatever we see. Look and see, let go, be free. The key is that it's not conceptual. There's no striving. It just comes from an interest. If you start getting conceptual, just smile at it and say, Thank you very much, not now. You know, it's And if you find your mind is busy or sticky, drop it. Then go back to paying attention to the waves of experience because that's the way that you'll begin to relax back open to the ocean, be with the waves. But if the waves are quiet, look and see, what is this ocean of awareness, this sea of wakefulness? And then just let go and be it. Let's, uh, Let's practice a little bit. And I really invite you to... uh, This is a kind of take-it-or-leave-it practice. If right now your state of mind is not a match for it, just put it, you know, file it away for a future day. But just keep open and curious. The key is once you have turned the attention, like instead of looking at the screen at a movie theater, you're looking back into the projector and into the mind that created the movie and delight that really it's sourced. Once you've looked back, the key is to let go and not to do anything. In fact, any doing resurrects a sense of a self, any strain in doing. So for right now, again, arrive in presence. Awaken your senses so that you can listen, hearing the sound. Awaken your senses so you can feel the aliveness in your body and you might relax and soften some. Feel what's here. Utterly awake, senses wide open, letting everything happen. Utterly open, non-fixating awareness, just letting be. You're noticing the foreground, the changing experience, these words, different sensations in the body, feelings, and remembering those hands just turning the attention around now and looking back what is aware? What is aware? What's listening right now? Is awareness here. Just turn around and look. And then whatever you see or sense, just relax back and be that. Rest as awareness. Soon what happens, you start noticing, oh, this sound, this feeling, this thought. So again, utterly awake. Senses wide open. Utterly open. Non-fixating awareness. Letting be. And then just gently turning the attention and looking back towards awareness. What is aware? What or who is listening right now? Look and see and then just let go and be free, just rest. The Tibetans say that the supreme seeing is the seeing of no thing. Just this alert stillness, this presence. Rumi writes of one light endlessly emanating all things, one bright turning diamond. One, one, one. Ground yourself. Strip yourself down to blind loving silence. Stay there until you see you are gazing at the light with its own ageless eyes. keeping your eyes closed if you like, to sensing the possibility of trusting this sky-like mind, this formless presence. It said that if you can trust the ocean you are not afraid of the waves. of experience come and go, the gift of trust, this heart that is ready for everything, allows us to respond then to our world with a very natural compassion, because the whole world is part of our hearts. It allows us to walk this earth like a child of wonder, including the joys and sorrows gives us a timeless love that senses beyond the forms, the beauty and goodness that's here and a liberating wisdom. Sri says, wisdom tells me I'm nothing Love tells me I'm everything and between the two my life flows. We started tonight with the must deer on its way somewhere not trusting what's here. We close and you might sense there's nothing ahead, there's no future. Nowhere to go. What's here? There's nothing to do. There's no problem to solve. What's here? can you give yourself this gift of deepening trust that this presence, light, tenderness is more true than any story you've ever told yourself? Namaste, and thank you for your attentiveness and presence, truly.